I do have to like inform you. Um, it's kind of weird though. It seems like it would be everywhere. <laughs> wow, that is, I had no idea. Yeah. I know. Fitz, it's really great to have mm-hmm. you. I'm going to introduce you to the audience because you are, you really don't need much of an introduction, but I did just call you Fitz and people might not know who that is, but that's just my special name for the one <laughs> only my fitness feelings, fitness feels welcome to here comes the backlash. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is so awesome. You are, you're a hero. I think that's fair to say. We're not supposed to have heroes in the new normal. So I don't put you on too high of a pedestal. No, I'm kidding. I really do respect you so much. You're kind of like a founding father, I feel like, of just this intangible, undefined space that a lot of us occupy in in Twitter and in, in online, I guess, politics or whatever. You've just been a real big influence and a shining light. You're a great writer and it's amazing to have you here. What should people know about you? What can people know about me? Um, man, I don't know. I honestly, I feel like if, if you, you know, follow my Twitter postings or whatever, I mean, it's weird. Like, I think the more you post anonymously, I don't know if this is something you've experienced, it starts to feel more like that becomes more who you are, weirdly. Um, you know, even though obviously I have some kind of whole separate in real life existence, it kind of feels like you become more of your anonymous presence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess the main thing I would say that maybe it pertains to this conversation is just that, um, you know, we're both, uh, fans of Michael Hoffman, his, his research. And so I had been rereading Hoffman and, um, you know, it was just really getting, I became kind of reinterested in some of his concepts. And so I guess recently people, some people may be familiar, some may not be familiar but I've been kind of diving, kind of doing a deeper dive into some of that stuff, reading some of the sources he draws on and so forth. And so, yeah, that's kind of just what I've been into at the moment, I guess. Yeah, you definitely have been into that. I think that's so fair to say. It's funny what you said about the like the Anon thing. It is almost, yeah, it's almost like a video game character of yourself that you're kind of building or like an avatar, which is kind of interesting, I guess, in its own ways. But I don't know. It almost feels like a thing that can take off onto its own life in a sense. Maybe it's a homunculus. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like a... It's, it's, it's something I think it's a common thing. I think people experience, um, but it is weird because on the one hand, it's, you know, your anonymous identity, it feels so real. It can have such, you know, um, it can have such emotional or psychological significance, right. In a way, but on the other hand, it's completely intangible. And um, yeah, I think it's a very interesting thing. I think it's definitely something I've experienced. And I think, you know, probably most like posters, you know, may experience to a degree, just particularly because uh, like you said, we live in the, the new normal or whatever you want to call this time. There's a lot of like censorship, right? I mean, there's censorship along the lines of, you know, you're not really allowed to deviate from certain kinds of left wing, I would say, or, or center left at least ideas, but also as I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, there's a whole nother kind of censorship. It's like, you can't be too kooky. You know, you can't think too much outside of what we're supposed to believe is like real and reasonable and and meaningful. Um, And so I think that's kind of a whole nother dimension where uh, people who are interested in the kinds of things uh, I suppose that we are and some other people are, it's, you know, it's like a nice mode of expression, right? You can talk about things that you're really not allowed to say in real life. Mm, so well put. It's funny because we're building this bridge between, I feel like, mental and like oh, emotional spaces almost. It's weird. Like these friendships that we build and these networks we have, they are different and intangible, I guess. Different from real friendships, that is. But it's in this new space. It feels very uncharted. It's really fun to explore. And I feel like they become real because I feel like Fitness Feels is a real person. I remember hearing you on Rare Candy, like, like in late 2021, just in a very dark time where there wasn't much community. And just hearing those episodes and it just it felt like you were like in the garage with me listening to this at my in-laws house I feel like I've sat in on those conversations some people may say I just like need help or whatever which is maybe possibly (laughs) true also but like it's it's genuine it actually touched me so it's they're real in their own way you know yeah absolutely yes it's really nice to hear that and I, I totally agree um, okay, Fitz, let's see. I brought you here because you've got a wealth of knowledge and I really wanted to just like, uh, yeah, unpack uh, a bunch of stuff or pick your brain. The pretense, I guess I brought you here really is kind of this 
backlash against the Gnosticism. There is this kind of a dirty word that's being thrown around. It's Gnostic. It's coming from kind of this traditional Christian online right-wing kind of sphere. It's tied to a bunch of other stuff, just kind of this increased awareness, uh, red pilling, I guess some people call it, but real deep dive into like esoteric stuff that's going on on a larger scale than was probably going on, you know, even just a few years ago, really. People are applying their own like kind of Hoffman or like downer the end, like lenses to things. And I don't even think they know where they got those skills or those tools or where they come from. Actually, just, just today, actually, I saw a whole analysis on like those cops that took down that like tranny shooter in Nashville. They did this analysis on their last names and it was just this whole like unpacking and like the very Hoffman kind of way. It really represented why I wanted to bring you here because I feel like it's everywhere. We're talking about weird occult things. You're talking about them. And I was just curious what, what brought you to that and what is to make of like, what the fuck is going on? I guess Fitz, what's going on? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, so I got interested in this stuff, kind of a reinterested, I should say again, because I found what I, what I was thinking about was that for many people in the, people who've been involved in, you know, conspiracy research or occult research, you know, I mean, if you think about Bill Cooper or Alice Jones and people who, you know, I mean, this stuff goes way back or it goes back decades at least, these kinds of scenes. And, and to your point, it's become way more mainstream. And that is something that is consistent with Michael Hoffman and Downer. And it's really Downer's hypothesis that Hoffman has popularized um, the, that we're in the revelation of the method era. And what I found so interesting about that concept is when I first read it and then started looking back at Hoffman again recently, is that it seemed to describe the very real impasse that many of us, um, I think, are at, which is that although it's like a maneuver in a psychological war that I think no one has really been able to counter. Because on the one, there's one position that sort of rejects the idea that there is a cryptocracy or that there is any kind of occult propaganda or control system at any level, right? And so if you reject that, at least in my opinion, if you reject the idea that there's these kind of hidden or indirect power sources in any way, that kind of forces you to live in a false reality that those people, right, or those institutions have built for you. And so in that sense, they kind of win, right? You're living in the fantasy world that you sort of mutually create with, with these people that are basically in control of you. But the other, the other move you have is to accept right, what seems to be the fact of their total control, which, if you follow Hoffman, is what they ultimately want, right? Because if you do that, you're just accepting that they are in charge, that they're already in charge of you, and thus you also lose. And so I think this was Hoffman's whole idea that I thought was so brilliant, was that, you know, the conspiracy researcher in some ways is the most powerful tool of what they're of what they're resisting, right? And so it's very interesting to see all of this stuff spread out so much because it is actually, I think, unfortunately, very, um, you know, it's what Hoffman would have predicted, that this stuff would be everywhere, right? That we would all kind of have the status of Masonic initiates, right? That we, we've, there's that this, this kind of information has been saturated and seeded so often. And I got interested in it because I was like, I want to kind of go back and look at this and see if there's some way out of this trap in some sense, it seems that we seem sort of caught in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a processing, right? I feel like it's a word he uses a lot. It's like an alchemical kind of processing is the way he's described it. I want you to kind of maybe to elaborate a little bit on how the researcher is so dangerous because I guess another term he uses a lot is like hoodwinked, right? And it's this hypnosis. Even though you're becoming aware, as you're becoming aware, you're actually becoming more entranced in this kind of strange, uh, in this strange way. And uh, yeah, how dangerous can I be as a conspiracy researcher? Right, Yeah. I mean, I think that on the one hand, well, I think it depends on how you do it, right? But I think, unfortunately, when I look at a lot of, and I, I, you see this more so on what I would frame as the left or the left-wing kind of parapolitics research community, and, and they do a lot of great research. And I agree with many of the things that those people say, but the unfortunate reality is that it almost all tends to be framed in this sense that, like, everything just comes back to the CIA is in control of everything or X is in control of everything. And therefore it's almost like there's, what's the point of even resisting? 
And I kind of agree with you a bit. I think, oh, this is Hoffman. Hoffman's point was that the, the, the traditional conspiracy researcher is always outclassed by what he or she is up against because, you know, these people want, in some sense, to be revealed. Like, they know that they're, they're they know it's impossible to keep this stuff secret for, you know, forever. And so the goal is slowly allow the researchers to kind of bring that stuff out in the open and get people used to it, right? And as this process of demoralization and so forth occurs, eventually people, uh, you know, the kind of thing that might have incited a mass revolt 50 or 100 years ago, no one even blinks an eye at today. Like the fact that a lot of people think whether this is true or not, there are theories, there are people that believe that the last election was stolen. You know, there was a time in which people would have been up in arms about it. Now people basically just accept it. Right. And so it's kind of like, what does getting the information out there really do? Um, yeah. And I think you're right for Hoffman. The whole thing is this is the end, the final stage of you know the alchemical process. And um, Hoffman makes this point, and, and that guy I've been posting, I've been reading his book, Kenneth Grant is very explicit about this too. And you could look at, at Julius Evola has a book on um, alchemy as well. It's like, you know, the one substance of alchemy, right, of the great work or whatever, is consciousness, right? That's, that's what that whole system is about transforming human consciousness. And so I think we can get into this if, if you want, but it's kind of like, I think a lot, there are the, certainly groups of people who believe that what they have to do to sort of advance is to sort of break everybody down. And, you know, I think that's, that's what Hoffman seems to think is happening. Mm-hmm. No, I fear it's true. I see it. I've kind of followed Hoffman and like Downard since probably about 2004 or five. I read the selections from like King Kill in Apocalypse Culture. Shout out to like Feral, Feral House Press. A lot of people, like I said before, don't know about the sources way of thinking or who really pioneered a lot of this research and, and analysis. It's interesting to see it so widespread now to the and with the COVID stuff, I would say in particular, um, you see it blackmailing people like with the vaccine stuff, it drives people crazy who kind of become awakened to this kind of system maybe i guess what they perceive or what i would also agree i perceive to be a vast and terrifying system kind of unfolding and everyone around them not seeing it you know and it's kind of this like rapid fire initiation almost you know processing and it's you see with the election though thing too i i will say yeah the election I'll confirm was stolen. I actually I looked it up on <laughs> on the Galactic database. It was con- it was confirmed stolen um, there. So I think there's people who feel that way, and they also similarly I think get kind of blackpilled by the way the media treated that like a big no big deal. Um, yeah, so it's just it's so dark and it's hard to see. Very much so. It's um, and yeah, and so I guess that's kind of one of my interests. I suppose is trying to figure out like okay, what's the how do you counter this psychological technology that has been unleashed, which is essentially forcing people into this choice of either living a lie or accepting this incredibly demoralizing truth? And either way, you know, the cryptocracy or the regime or the elites or, or whatever you want to call it wins. And part of the answer to that, I think, is to understand that what they're doing with this COVID thing is a really great example of that. Is like they they want to seem more and they have a huge amount of power, but they don't have like total power, right? In other words, I think a lot of what this revelation of the method kind of propaganda tends and demoralization propaganda tends to do is it tries to like close the gap between like godlike levels of being like a total causal force, right? Versus just being like very powerful and influential. And the truth is those aren't the same thing. And um, I think it's very easy though, and they've moved a good number of people into that kind of second category where it's like, or I can't remember it's the first category, but essentially into the believing that, you know, there's some group of people who are, you know, completely in control of everything. And every single thing that happens is, um, you know, because of them, and there's no way to hold them to account. And, you know, Hoffman is an example of someone who thinks, yeah, there are people like this, and they are very powerful, but they could be held accountable. You know, there's nothing actually preventing us from doing that, except our own belief that it can't be done. 
Mm-hmm. Preach. Fitz, you're blowing my mind. That was amazing. And yes, exactly. Our own belief. And I think that's really where it comes down to. There's people who tend to spin things one way. I would say that is kind of more blackpilling or in a more hopeless way. There's people who tend to be more, maybe a little bit more optimistic or have a little bit more of a fighter's attitude. You know, there's no point in even researching any of this, right? If someone's going to just go into it and be like, well, they are impossible to stop. They're all powerful and they're going to eventually win no matter what. So it's like, well, why even, why not just go to like, take the blue pill and just go to Starbucks and watch a movie, you know? I don't know. Honestly. You have to have a vision. Like, yeah, that's where I'm like kind of thinking yeah, I think that's a good point. It's like, yeah, you don't want to be, I, I'm not, I don't think you're not, I don't think you're suggesting this at all either. It's like, you don't want to be a Pollyanna, but on the other hand, you know, there, you know, there, there's some kind of a balance I think that's necessary. And that is one thing I think that, you know, a careful research process. And I say careful in the sense, not just to becoming overwhelmed with tons of facts and details, but truly a research process that is that takes also the big picture into account, I think can uh, can allow you to see that you know these people have tried lots of things too that haven't succeeded, right? That, that they're not always successful. Oftentimes they fail or things kind of go wrong or whatever, and they have their own kind of struggles and inadequacies that we don't. Um, that we don't necessarily see, right? Or at least it's not obvious to us. But that, I, that, is, that is something I think that research um, can unveil, which can be something that's revitalizing and um, remoralizing. Yeah, you're, yeah you're, you are so right. They, if they were so good at it, they would be like totally in charge and we would just be in full like a techno nightmare state. And we're close. It feels like it's there, but it's really not um, gone really well. You can kind of tell from the COVID narr- narrative again that there were some probably bumps in the road if that was uh, originally like a planned out event because it didn't really go superb. Um, so you're, you're probably right about that. And I think maybe that's another strategy is learning how this game works that they're playing and playing it back at them. You know, I feel like that's a, um, I feel like that's what William Burroughs really was trying to kind of get at to a certain extent. I don't know. Mm, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a good point. And, you know, it's like, yeah, the COVID is a really good example. And I think also you can just think about your own experience as, as a person, right? So if, even if you imagine like, a, I don't know, like John Coleman is an example of someone like this who literally thinks that there's, you know, he doesn't really have any hard evidence for this, but he spends, you know, a whole book laying out this concept that there's basically 300 people that decide everything, right? And control pretty much every institution in the Western world. Okay, maybe that exists. I don't know. But if you imagine there really is some cabal of 300 people that like sits down and gets together and makes every decision. I mean, if you think about even if that existed, okay, like even if you just assume everything he said was true, ask, if you just think about it, like if you think about your own thought process, right? Like me or you, you know, where do your thoughts and ideas come from? You know, they, they, they seem to like, in other words, I mean, this is kind of a, a Zen or a, a Buddhist sort of idea, but they seem to just sort of emerge from nothing, you know, like you don't really, um, we don't decide to decide something. Like at a certain point, you just kind of intuitively make a choice, right? Like our personality and our psychological our psychological reality emerges spontaneously in connection to our environment it's the same with these people you know they're even if they're even if they were doing that i'm not saying that they are but just assuming the worst case scenario they they still have to make all their decisions in reference to some external reality right that they're all creating and that we're creating there isn't there's no way to just assign um total causal blame to some kind of conceptual scapegoat, like a singular kind of cabal. It's not possible, you know? Um, and, and yeah, so it's just kind of like, there is no empirical circumstance that is truly, I think, as hopeless as some people believe. And you can just verify that. Anyone can verify that by just checking in with how their own mind works and just kind of understanding that almost certainly these people's minds work kind of just like ours do. 
Okay, I, I threw up the, um, the hands up emoji in the chat on the screen while you were going off there because like preach, like, oh my gosh, that was so amazing. Yes, this, where where does it, where do our ideas, where does our will come from? It blows my mind. And there's something I've been thinking about. Also, you mentioned John Coleman. I had the book within arm's length because I'm a school. So, and so it was funny because you said that you're right. It's unverifiable. I do like to pretend that Theodore Adorno wrote all the Beatles songs because that's like really funny to think about. But it is something that once seemed way crazier to me. Like I I had this book for a a pretty long time and I remember this and books like None None Dare Call It a Conspiracy, which I guess maybe a little bit more factual based probably. Yeah. Still feels like a little felt like fever dreams, right? Like, no, this is too far. Feel much more closer to the the truth. I don't know. Um, and a lot of this Hoffman stuff too. It always felt more. Um, I know. I don't, did you have this experience? Maybe where it feels closer to home in the last few years through some of the things that we've witnessed. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think there's no question that COVID broke, like finally, kind of broke the illusion or whatever of the 20th century and, you know, democracy and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, we all, you know, I, even people who were kind of aware of these types of things, it was sort of, it, it didn't hit as close to home, I think, as it did after that, because it was just so oppressive and and just crazy and ridiculous, you know? Um, So I completely understand. Okay, you brought up this grand illusion of the 20th century, and it is a grand illusion. I was there for part of the end of it. It was like amazing. But looking back, it, the whole thing, like this <laughs> Crowleyan, another fever dream, it feels kind of like this strange fantasy that they pulled off for a long time. And that kind of, I guess, brings me to somebody named H.P. Blavatsky, who you've been posting about a bit as well. And um, yeah, why are you interested in H.P. Blavatsky? Am I, am I correct in inferring that she has a, a role in shaping the 20th century? century fever dream yeah i think she definitely does i mean i got interested in her well i read renee gunon's theosophy i have theosophy i don't know how to pronounce it whatever his book on that subject on her stupid little organization she has a lot of fans whenever i get it i'm I'm not really a big you know lover or whatever but okay i don't think she's a horrible person uh but i I think she does have a role and I, i what i'll say is that so Grant, Kenneth Grant, who who wrote, I mean, he wrote two thirds of the books that Hoffman is kind of like these these really revealed, you know, some super high level secrets. So just to give people some context, basically, according to Grant, right, who Grant is himself a, I think it's called Vama Marg. He was basically a left hand path occultist. He was initiated into the same tradition that Crowley and Blavatsky and those people were all into. And that that the way Grant explains it is you have Theosophy, that's the kind of outer circle of this thing. And then the inner circle of that is the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And then the inner circle of that, which Blavatsky was in, there's a, I can't remember the name of it. It's it's a secret name, but basically Crowley always references A and his little triangle of dots A. So it's just basically like AA. I don't know. That's what it's called, and uh, that's supposed to be the true Hermetic Brotherhood that's been passed down for like thousands of years. So Blavatsky's in that. Crowley's in that. You know, a, b- a bunch of people were. Um, what Cr- Blavatsky's role seems to be that she really introduced these those sort of western occult scene into key eastern esoteric concepts particularly tantra um which you know which are basically these like kind of magical like sex ritual techniques that come from these certain kind of i guess indian mystery cults and and practices um and i think that so i mean blavatsky was, I, I, she was perceived as a fraud. I mean, how much of a fraud she really was is unclear to me. According to Grant, she was mostly legitimate. She had reached a very high grade of initiation, second only to Crowley, ultimately. Um, but, um, but yeah, so, but I think my sense of it is that, that she introduced some of these ideas which just absolutely led to a revolutionary, basically a revolutionary new approach, which Crowley then kind of took up that completely changed the structure of 
basically Western um, hermeticism or like occultism. And just for anyone who's listening, um, that kind of means the same thing. Like occult, something that's occult just means something that's secret or mysterious. So technically, once you know about it, it's not occult. But, you know, they're kind of vaguely, they do mean different things. They're kind of vaguely interchangeable terms for these kinds of like, I don't know, vaguely neo-pagan Western or Eastern um, mystery religions. So we could get into, and I think it is relevant to Hoffman, oh, yeah. what change was. Because I do think it is like very significant, ultimately. Yeah, I, let's let's get into it. I think one way also you can think, I guess, though, of this impact or influence, I would say is just like popular culture, like Hollywood m- movies, music, like a famous example, I guess, is like Crowley being on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's like, album. He's one of the figures that's there, but definitely like a huge influence on like rock and roll oh, music. Yeah. Uh, explicitly, but I think even uh, more, you know, esoterically, a lot of people are uh, followers or disciples of this kind of this cult that you. It is said, I guess, in this in this Grant book that they were the top two: Crowley and Blavatsky. And I can almost picture people like <laughs> Madonna or like just various figures from the uh, 20th century being members of this. Uh, what we probably think of today is like the Illuminati, which is probably maybe more something akin to this. Well, yeah. So the Illuminati. I mean, it, the truth is, I mean, there's a high amount of this. It's just, it's just a fact. It's, this is just literally what happened, and and can be, um, can be verified independently. And there's a really good uh, German historian Reinhard Kosselak, if anyone is interested, who wrote. Um, I can't. Don't have the book handy, but oh no, I do. It's called. Uh, Critique and Crisis, um, Enlightenment in the Parthogenesis of Modern Society, where he kind of goes into some of this, but you can pretty much verify that the Illuminati and Adam Weishaupt, that was all a real thing. You know, that wasn't, that's not some, which I'm sure you know, and, and many people listening may know too. So that was, Grant considers the Illuminati like an earlier phase of the same basically esoteric tradition, according to Grant. Um and yeah, it did have a huge influence on popular culture. I mean, the Black Sabbath song, I think it was, like Mr. Crowley. Um, anyway, so the idea here, according to Grant, is that they're in this hermetic order of the Golden Dawn, whatever, uh, a, this, this secret kind of thing. And the belief within this group is that they lost contact. And this is like a really good to clarify, I don't really buy into this stuff. I'm just kind of trying to explain what they believe. So the whole, the, in the simplest terms, and many people may try to dispute this, and, and that's fine. But in the simplest possible terms, what these people believe is that ultimately the ultimate kind of God or something, right, is the, is kind of represented by the star Sirius, which the Egyptians worshipped, and more or less the knowledge that led to human consciousness and civilization comes from basically solar angels or alien beings from that star who then give that to humans and then kind of begin, you know, the process of civilization or whatever here. Um, There's some element of that basically. And they believe in their magical rituals that they were contact, they contact these kinds of extra dimensional beings. So the idea is that, I think at the time the guy's name was Mathers, okay? But so this guy Mathers is running this whole thing when Crowley is kind of just very low level. And Mathers is believed to have lost contact with these aliens. And so that like threw the whole group into chaos and basically Crowley advances very quickly and they have different, there's 10 grades in total. No one has ever reached the 10th grade. That guy was only at the seventh grade. Crowley advances basically past him and takes control of the organization. And, he, and what he introduces, so but this is really the key part that is somewhat complicated, um, is that before this, they were doing kind of like what we think of as being sort of ceremonial magic, okay? And I don't totally get that, but what Crowley introduces is this element of sex and drugs, so he, he, he includes, and Crowleyist magic is all about fusing man and woman as opposites together, right, um, to create uh, what he calls the unity, basically like the unity beyond stability, the one beyond 10. Men and women are represented by five and six or whatever in his system. That supposedly restores contact with these like aliens and proves that Crowley's magical system is the like true 
basically revival of the ancient magics of like Egypt and God knows what before. So Crowley pretty much, so there's this significant shift where this, this, their magical rituals become much more like ecstatic, okay, and sexualized. And Grant is very open about that. What I suspect is that the more complex like ceremonial magic that they were doing before didn't really go away, but that it just became more like the kind of rituals that uh, Hoffman, for example, talks about, like the killing of the king or, uh, you know, the moon landing, um, you know, and so forth, right? They, they, they took those rituals to a way bigger scale in space and in time because that was the only way they believed it could work. That's kind of Hoffman's argument. Grant doesn't actually say that, but I think that's more or less what, how Hoffman reads this whole thing. But I think that shift, more or less, is very significant in terms of like all these conspiracy type things because someone like Hoffman more or less believes a lot of these conspiracies are basically rituals, which are really just like basically ways of processing and controlling the mind of the sort of like, you know, basically uh, mass of people that exist, you know, in today's society and, and more or less Crowley and all this stuff is very key to kind of unlocking all that. I realized that was like a lot. It was amazing. Thank you for that. It was fucking amazing. So, okay, but let's pack. We might have to pack a little bit here just because uh, that was, yeah, that was really good. Okay. Let me take a chill pill. Okay. Let's go back to actually to what you were saying about just like the way it was influencing people, because I think, I think people have missed that in a lot of in the analysis that they do this kind of cheap Hoffman and, and downward like knockoff analysis of events that take place. Like I, mean, I shouldn't say Sandy Hook. That's the worst thing I could ever bring up. But like Sandy Hook or you know, what's a good one is the Vegas shooting. People will do these kind of like uh, like, you know, what does he call it? Mystical toponymy. Like they kind of look at the names and such, you know, but it's crappy. Right. They don't do the full analysis. That's kind of the piece that's missing is really this like influence, like through subtle, subtle ways do you, can you elaborate on that, do you, or do you want to? Well, yeah. So, I mean, one of the, well, just to your point, right? The reason why those analyses are never very good is because, um, how do I say this? It's really, really difficult. I mean, the, the they, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess this up, but basically, people that are into this stuff, they're into Kabbalah and the Hermetica and all, all these kind of esoteric mystery religions and masonry, et cetera, you know, they talk about this in King Kill, right? That there's a kind of science, a Masonic science, I can't remember the name of it, of names and numbers that come from the Kabbalah and come from these Enochian system and all this stuff. It is incredibly complicated. And there's all kinds of different codes and secret things where actually this means that. And, you know, if you didn't know that, you know, you have to know that there's a special in this person's system, this number, especially important, you have to know to like emphasize what they say in the chapter of their book that has that number, or that, you know, you have to know that, you know, every letter has a numerical value. And so certain words add up their, their, their the value of their number adds up to a concept that clues you into something else. The reality is this stuff is unbelievably complicated. And I'm not saying that it leads to anything real necessarily, but as a mechanism of communication, it's super hard to interpret. And so if you just try to like dive in as a totally uninitiated, you know, uh, just kind of lay person, like you're going to get all of it wrong, right? Like you just, it's just impossible. I think it takes so much study to even begin to vaguely crack the code just because there's just so much information. I mean, I, I wouldn't even be able to come close to interpreting it. You know, there's, there's that one guy on Twitter, unconscious of this. He's like the only lay person in this who, who ever it seems to really understand and to be able to accurately decode any of this. And so I, I think one problem with it is all that stuff is just very misleading. You know, it, it does exactly what Hoffman and Downard were in a sense trying to prevent in that it doesn't communicate any real information, but it does kind of communicate the idea that there's more powerful people that are in control of you, which is very demoralizing. And so in some sense, it's kind of worse than nothing. Mm -hmm. You're right. You should thank you for mentioning. Yeah. Unconscious Abyss is a great one. There's, there are some like Anons and such out there that do, do good analysis. Cause I think there is, I shouldn't imply yeah that no one does it, but broad, you're right. There, there are. Yeah. But, but it's broadly rare, you know? Right. 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 And it's like, um, 
Yeah, there is like some really bad ones, but I also feel like the thing that Downer was did was he had style, right? I don't know if you've ever like read, I've only read his the memoir, but it's like he had this style, it's humorous. He's like a Mark Twain almost kind of, where it's very unclear when he's serious, when he's completely schizo, when he's actually talking about something real. It's very relatable to me, I feel. And so he has like a style, I think. And that's where where people have like a success, where they have a true um, framing or understanding or they're grounded in some way, their approach to the world and yet you're right because i think when people don't have that the whole world is first of all written in like like esoteric and like occult images it's just trendy to use in marketing and branding so it's just everywhere and all that stuff is based on like everyday things so everything is going to be occult in some way because it's all based on common symbols yeah i think it's a really interesting question the extent to which you know the extent to which this stuff is inserted knowingly or unknown, like inserted intentionally to process people versus this is just a culture that we have. And the reality is that the Renaissance and the Enlightenment were all very, I mean, that was, a, those were a fundamentally, as I mean, Francis Yates, I think pretty conclusively showed, those were basically occult movements for better or for worse. And so this, our heritage is fundamentally, you know, bound up in this stuff. There's really no way to get rid of it. I think that's kind of where Hoffman errors personally um i don't think you can i don't know how we would totally get past it but yeah it's an interesting question but there's no doubt it's everywhere i mean if you once you've learned even a little bit about some of it you will see it over and over and over again it's uh, really easy to like skits out like it, it's uh it is schizo inducing it literally does cause this kind of dissociation if you are not careful i think and so um, and with all of these things i think the things that we're discussing i think there's actually a lot of value in even i think crowley is like a good example of somebody who like probably deserves his horrible reputation but maybe is still I don't want to say misunderstood because I don't want to say like I'm caping for him. But I do remember reading one of his writings where it felt like he was like really sticking it to the libs. And I was like, well, that's surprising, <laughs> like for considering who's writing this, you know, and the communists too. I feel like he specifically called out the communists in something I was writing. So I feel like this stuff can be approached. I would advise listeners not to um, go too heavy or too hard or internalize it too much. But it is, I feel like, as like um, thought provoking. It can be very, I guess, fruitful. I don't know if that's your your experience. Yeah, for sure. And like Crowley, for example, I mean, it's always hard to know what these people, you know, because there's so many layers of different, you know, cover stories and different meanings. It's always hard to know. I don't think that any of these people are, you know, absolutely bad or absolutely good. I mean, I, I think, you know, Crowley was a person and he went really far. I mean, I think arguably he went as far. I, my understanding is he is considered to have gone the farthest. He made it to, in this AA that I mentioned, he made it to grade nine, which uh, is nine equals two, which is the highest anyone's made it. I think they call it magis. No one's ever made it that high. And um, talking about the idea that it's kind of schizo-inducing, I mean, I think what these people believe about themselves is that once you reach a certain level of attainment in this these secret societies, you have to take an oath basically to do what's called crossing the abyss. And what that, I don't fully understand this concept, but it means something like swearing an oath to these like alien, after you've discovered your like true name from like these aliens or whatever, spirits and so forth, you are able to reach a point where you can take an oath, like a cosmic oath to Treat every single thing that happens to you as though it's like kind of a particular thing happening to like a god of his or her own universe. So every single thing you have to, you basically give up your ego and have to treat everything that happens as a kind of it's having like absolutely cosmic or spiritual significance, which is like kind of like schizophrenia or something, right? I mean, it's it's you let go of the human symbolic order and you kind of what they you cross the abyss into something beyond and of course the, their belief is that blavatsky by the way supposedly did this as well grade eight is where that happens so but if they say anyone can agree to do this but unless you've been prepared psychologically and magically or whatever through their different rituals and so forth there and, and ordeals that you'll go insane. And they think they give various examples of people who that may have happened to. But um, I feel like Downard a little bit, 
brought some of that perspective, you know, it's like, uh, in some ways, it's kind of like, I think Hoffman maybe even described in this way, it's like returning to a way of relating to the world that's almost like the way a kind of primitive or archaic person would, where every single thing is seen as being imbued with like sacred significance and is in connection with every other thing. And, you know, modern people don't really feel that way. But I do feel like some of these elements, whether it's like pro Crowley or against like downer, both represent kind of like a maybe attempt to bring that back uh, in a certain respect. my mind like they say blown but it's like really truly like inside it is expanding like you were talking like that was incredible description of crossing the abyss wow okay literally each time you speak i literally lose my composure but that's um part of what this this program is about um i guess this like oh yeah and i know what i was gonna ask you i guess like kind of this revelation of the method piece it can be schizo inducing yeah i was asking about this the concept like i know dweller on the threshold is kind of brought up i think sometimes too in these uh i I think blavatsky writes about it somewhat maybe and it's just kind of like this moment i guess like this pivotal moment that that's what you kind of evoked in me when you were describing this i had not really heard of this crossing the abyss that felt like totally i uh, think yeah i think that when you crawl like so when you're at the threshold you're kind of you're you're there you know that you know that this is there but you haven't crossed it i mean this is this is really my guess i'm not totally familiar with how Bobaski uses that term but i think probably the threat when you cross the threshold that is the point of no return, right? Where you have made the, you've made the leap into basically what they believe is a greater kind of, you know, cosmic consciousness that comes with, you know, incredible potential, but also danger um, that I think very, according to them, very, very few people have ever done. That is- you could become aware of through their, you know, writings or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That um, I'm thinking of like Maslow's like self actualization, like his his hierarchy. I'm like, is that what he meant on the top of that pyramid of his? Um, I was going to ask you about Jack Whiteside Parsons. Actually, for some reason, when you mentioned this order, is he? Are you familiar with that? Is he in this group too? Did he? Did he take an initiation? You mean Jack Propulsion Lab guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one that like. Oh yeah, yeah. He was. In it. I mean, he was. He was. He was in this, and they. It's a little. Grant is a little bit more. Um, Grant is a little bit more uh, circumspect about talking about that guy. You can tell that there's some real significant stuff that went on, and he doesn't totally want to reveal it. Um, <laughs> Hoffman is like more direct, of course, like in his interpretation. But yeah, that guy was not only in it, but I mean, I think they thought he was incredibly significant. I mean, I think they kind of thought he was maybe like the antichrist you know and and i say they for them they try to say at least terms like the antichrist and the beast 666 and all that stuff is meant to like turn off the closed-minded traditionalist christian and it's not actually evil i don't know if i buy that or not but regardless i think they thought he was like a really important figure and he was definitely involved in it i mean i remember hoffman saying pretty directly that like that guy had sex with his mom for example mm-hmm. as being a part of these left-hand path rituals and like just to be clear like um you know blavatsky was she kind of divides the occult based on these tantric ideas into the right-hand path and left-hand path according to grant the secret of the left-hand path it's just according to him, it's just a technical term that means you use well i better back up and say this first um all of this stuff, like when we talk about crossing the abyss and, and you know, this Jack Parsons guy and all the weird kind of stuff they were doing, we tend to think, um, and this is a point that Grant makes explicitly, we tend to think when you interpret 
you go back and look at like the Egyptian book of the dead, the average person kind of thinks like, oh, okay, this is a book that has a bunch of physical descriptions of like how they mummify people and what they did in their practices. And that that's the exoteric idea and the esoteric or hidden secret powerful idea are like metaphysical truths about the nature of the universe that are contained in this text. What Grant says is the highest level standing, it's actually the reverse. It actually reverses back. And that the reality is what alchemy and occultism and all of this stuff is really about are physiological and biological ritual alchemical techniques that are used to change the body, right? Or, or interact with the body um, to produce higher states of consciousness. And so the whole thing is really, it's very medical almost in a way. And like, of course, they're very into Pericles and, and such people. So the left-hand path, which is what all these people are sort of on, that just means that they use, attempt to use more or less like fluids, like secretions from women's bodies. They inhale them and use them and consume them, modify them in different ways in these rituals to perform various like magical types of things. And so that's what the left hand path means. It's a technical term that means that. I mean, how much can Grant be trusted on, on it, that being the only thing that it means? I don't know. But clearly, that is a huge part of it. And so Parsons and all these guys, I mean, they were, they were definitely involved in some really weird ritual type stuff. You know, like, I mean, weird sex stuff and, you know, God, God knows <laughs> what else. Well, you're saying this thing, uh, stuff about um, fluids and the need for it. And I'm thinking of like all these swabs and all this blood samples for COVID and for all this like medical. I mean, you're describing really like a, a cult of science almost to me in the, in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Like the, it comes it comes home. Um, I, I don't want to keep you super late. I guess is that is this. Is there any truth to the idea, maybe, that what we were describing here, these kind of like ancient kind of like persistent kind of beliefs that have gone on throughout history that have really crystallized in the last, you know, few decades slash centuries, maybe, that they are really driving this agenda that we see today that is so troubling to so many of us, this kind of techno-humanist, I call it techno-humanist, I don't know why, but just this kind of transmutation of what everyday life is. Is it fair of us to be so paranoid about it and ascribe so much credit to those forces? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, the answer is I don't really know. I would say that I think it's fair to pose the question and I think it's also fair to consider like, yeah, maybe like it's also fair to consider that there could be many different ways in which this relationship plays out. Like there could be no relationship between these weird things and kind of what's going on now. There could be a, it could literally be like some kind of direct conspiratorial intent, you know, or it, it could just be that there's something about the way the human mind is structured. Um, this is probably what I would tend to think, but it's just a guess. There's something about the way the human mind is structured that leads us to continually rediscover kinds of basically social structures, uh, you know, that we call rituals, and and that that more and that what's happening is these people, these you know Crowley and Parsons and, and God knows who else, are have rediscovered certain types of things that do have a certain they do reference or have a real ability to um, achieve some kind of effects, unclear exactly what, but it's maybe more like they're just kind of flowing in like a current, they're kind of going in a current that's really greater than what they can even understand, even greater than the current, they, the occult magical current they believe in, that there's something more, even more fundamental than that. They are in line with, but they perceive themselves as having a much greater degree of causality than they really do. Um, or it's also possible just that, you know, these ideas were very big um, amongst powerful people at certain kind of points in history. And, and maybe they just kind of had an influence, you know, like they had an influence on the culture, on our intellectual life and so forth. And they just kind of seeded certain types of things that are just now playing out. And, and there really is no direct intent. I, I think it's, I really is not possible, I think, to say for certain, um, but it's a good thing to be aware of because there, I mean, when the more you look into it, I think the more people you'll see like, wow, like there is kind of a lot of like, you know, a lot of connections between some of this esoteric type stuff. And like you said, like the modern medical industry or, you know, uh, what, what, you know, what COVID and whatever. Um, so 
So yeah, I would urge people, I guess, not to jump to any conclusions, but to just kind of like consider and see what, you know, seems right to, seems right to them. This is a jump to conclusion show. And so I think Dr. Fauci absolutely is a sorcerer of the apocalypse. For us, just, you know, I think what you actually just said gave me hope, I think, because there is uncertainty. And I think that a lot of times things seem so fixed and certain. And there is really scary things going on. And I think I don't want to be too, like, Pollyanna-ish or naive. But I do want to be kind of delusional, I guess, because I feel like that's all we have left maybe in some ways. And so, like, we have to have this uh, a bold vision of, like, of triumph. And it will be kind of probably a, a battle I think people should be prepared for, like, something. I don't mean, like, violent battle, like, parody, like, you know what I mean? It's just a struggle, a, a change in, like, kind of, like, in everyday life, if we want to go up against these kind of, like cryptocracy, crypt- cryptocratic forces, I don't know, these shadow go- governments, whatever you want to call them, they're really truly organized. And I think you've given me like a lot of clarity, I feel like this evening and a sense of and opportunities for hope. So I really appreciate it, Fitness Feelings. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. That was a great conversation. Uh, I, I, yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, is there anything else you wanted to cover? I think, well, maybe I'll say this. Like whatever people can kind of uh, get into that gives them a little bit of like fighting spirit, in my opinion, that's that's a good thing, given what we're we're going on. I think I think you addressed that very well. Thank you. First of all, it was amazing conversation. I really want you to come back and explain Rene Girard to me because I feel like there is a, a lot of adjacency, maybe even in some of this, uh, in some of this of what we talked about tonight. But you truly are the the captain of the squad in many ways. You're the the QB, and you are inspiring all of us to keep up in this fight. Thank you. You used to do it even when you were just like a cozy bear, honestly. Like you were still had that three hundred kind of fight. <laughs> But your new default photo definitely manifests uh, the true the true energy. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, so right now, I just have my Twitter, which is at uh, at Fitness Feelings with a Z end instead of an S. It's the most important follow on the internet, in my opinion. Oh my gosh, I just dropped my... I always do this by Nancy Pelosi Rock. I use it as a soothing stone. Um, neither here nor there. Fitness heels. I'm going to go like run around the block. I'm so giddy like a puppy right now because this was so great. And I just appreciate you very much, sir. Thank you for joining me this evening. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.